Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loblassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have my friend Kendra. Kendra Allen is the woman behind the Instagram account, online course, and blog, Breakup Bestie. After going through a series of unhealthy relationships in her early 20s, including one of narcissism, abuse, and emotional unavailability, Kendra began gathering tools and working on herself to prevent that from happening again. Around the same time, Kendra got sober at the age of 21 after years of self-destructive alcoholism, as opposed to not self-destructive alcoholism. A few years into that, she experienced the breakup that brought her to her knees, the kind where you feel like you might actually be dying. Without having alcohol to take the edge off, she really dove into what it takes to go through a breakup with grace. And with growth, she learned how to come out the other side a better person. After seeing a huge gap in breakup advice online, Kendra decided to launch Break Up Bestie the same year she got married to the love of her life. She loves empowering women to view a breakup not as an end, but as a beginning to a beautiful path to learn about yourself and to get in touch with what you really want out of a relationship. Kendra just launched the Breakup Bestie online course, which walks people through how to navigate their breakup with tools, writing exercises, a workbook, and 23 video lessons. This stuff is so cool, you guys, and her story is unreal, and I cannot wait for you to hear it. So stick around. Please welcome my friend, Kendra Allen, episode 35. Let's do this. Kendra, welcome to the podcast booth. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I know. Uh, we tried to get you on last season, but I'm really glad we get to your like top of the list on the on season two. So this should be good. Yes, I'm so honored to be on here. So. And uh, you just launched your course, which I feel like um, I'll let you talk about it, but I'm kind of disappointed I didn't have it like 10 years ago, all the times that I needed this. But I think this is the coolest thing ever. Will you tell us a little bit about your recent course before we dive into your most intimate details of your life? Absolutely. (laughs) So I just launched the Breakup Bestie online course. So it is an online course that takes people through kind of step-by-step healing process after going through a breakup, which it's interesting you mentioned that you wish you had it 10 years ago. I wish I had it through my breakups and I started it for me. Right, (laughs) right. Selfishly, yes. That's how it always starts. Yeah, so I started that. So we just, it's been in the works for about a year and a half. So just launched it. So I'm super excited to see, you know, the impact that it'll have on people. So breakupbestie.com. Yes. And how did you come up with that name? It's interesting. My husband and I were kind of bouncing back and forth and I wanted something that was super comforting. So like being the bestie that you go to for a breakup. There's always some funny coincidence. Like people will sometimes say, is it breakup with your bestie? I'm like, no, it's not. (laughs) I'm not teaching you how to break up with your best friend. I'm the bestie (laughs) helping you through your breakup. You're like, clarification. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, that's so funny. I didn't even think of that. No, it's so awesome because who can't relate to – there's like a couple of – life situations that I would say the majority of the population is going to go through, right? Like if you have a roommate, you're going to get in a fight with your roommate. That, 
you know, period, end of story. If you have a significant other, you're probably going to break up. You know, it's the rarity. Those are, you know, if you go to middle school, you'll never be the same again. Yeah. <laughs> like these are, these are life truisms, right? So, and the breaking up part, I mean, I always, there was a, my, my mom is a master's athlete. Your family's master into master's track. No. My dad does triathlons. Triathlons, right. Yeah. So, and I, for years I've met these athletes who were just focused on sports their whole lives. And then they date for the first time in their like mid to late twenties and their first like relationship and breakup in their late twenties. Right. So they'll be dating and you, you can see there, that's what you do for the rest of us. Most of us did that at 16 or well, whatever it was. Yeah. And, <laughs> and whatever, whatever. Some of us a little uh, earlier. So, yeah. Bleep. But you can see it's the same. Like the first time you go through it, it doesn't matter what stage in life you're in. It's like you just don't know how to deal with that. And the younger you are, like as, you know, you you get the hang of it or you're scarred. But I, I noticed that without those, how important those skills were, seeing people do it for the first time in their late 20s, how awkward that was. Yeah. And, you know, I always tell people that it's normal to physically feel like you're going to die from yes. a breakup. Oh, like yes. you are completely powerless, mm-hmm. hopeless. And, you know, I've gone through quite a few in my life. And the most significant one was my first sober breakup because mm-hmm. that was like nothing to reach for. Oh, God, the worst nothing to take the edge off. It's like just me. And, you know, luckily being sober, I had some extra tools, but it's, it was definitely the most painful because it just felt so incredibly raw. And I think one of the biggest reasons I started it too, was I looked online when I was going through my breakup, like Google, like help, (laughs) breakup help, (laughs) ask Jeeves, please help me. (laughs) And all this stuff on there was so gimmicky, like how to get over your ex in 28 days. It's like, you know, it's like promising that someone will stay sober for the rest of their life after a 14 day program. It's like, that's just not gonna, it's just not gonna happen. So I was like, something needs to be there with actual like writing assignments and tools and all of the things that I did that got me you know, from day one of the breakup into like a point where I was like, okay, I'm not in pain constantly. So my, the old adage that my friends and I said, like, I'm going to be in trouble for saying this, um, where like, oh, to get over someone, you got to get under someone yeah. else. That was not, it. is that in the breakup bestie? Not, no, no, that part, okay. no, okay, that, I'll just, that, you know, that part, I do talk about dating again, <laughs> but, but no. you know, and I, and I, like I say too, hey, there are tools like, drinking, like for people that can do it, right? you know, doing like hookups, one night stands, dating, like that's okay, you know, as long as it doesn't become your main coping skill, you know, like if if you're using that solely to deal with your breakup, probably not a good idea. But, you know, those things sparingly are okay. I feel like we all do that, Yeah, you know, so I try to make it so it's not super rigid, but it's also, you know, we're going to focus. It's all about the person. Totally. Like we're not going to focus on the X. Like we're going to just turn it inward because that's, that's, you know, in my experience, the only way that I've been able to heal from something like that. Yeah. I love that. I think it's so cool. And I think it's so, I think it's so needed in, 
you know, we have like there's so many different things to address, but like this this like fundamental thing we all go through. I mean, we all and like the breakup bestie, right? We all can think of, you know, I think to my best friend who my husband and you and your husband had the same experience that me and my husband had, which is we broke up for mm-hmm. a long period of time, which was vital to our relationship being sustainable later on. And we broke up. And I remember my best friend, my husband and I my boyfriend at the time, we had a trip planned to Washington, D.C. And so we broke up and I had this trip planned to D.C. And it was in the spring and and my best friend was like, I'll go with you to D.C. Like, we'll just go and he'll move out while we're, while we're uh, in D.C. So we went to like all the monuments and I was just crying at every, like, and I kept saying like, people must think I'm so patriotic right now because I'm just at every <laughs> We would go to every we go to the 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 mall, we go to like every place and I'm just like, oh my god. Crying in front of Lincoln. Literally crying in front of Lincoln. Just I burst and I would I would be fine and then you'd I'd burst into tears like randomly and it always happened and I just I was like, they must think I just became a citizen or something. Like I couldn't stop. But you know, my breakup bestie, like it was that was she, she, poor poor Serena. I mean, she like the whole time just, you know, like it's gonna be okay, reminding me doing the whole thing. Like we all have that experience. So to have that like a you know coursework to do is just phenomenal. Oh, thank you. And I actually had a similar story. I went my girlfriends convinced me to go to Vegas. Oh no. Right after <laughs> My now husband and I broke up and, you know, they're like, go make out with, uh-huh. you know, they're uh-huh. like trying to push me to you right. know, do all this stuff. And for the most part, I had fun. But the last day we were at like a day club, like I think the DJ was like Martin Garrix and I'm like front row, like right there and just start sobbing <laughs> <laughs> right in front of the DJ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, wow, I really... Yeah. I yeah. really, I really dropped the beat on that one. I'm just because I think I saw like two random people making out, and it made me feel super sappy that like I don't have that, yeah. and just started sobbing. <laughs> and I always say it was like a gift from God. It started pouring, and I was like, "Thank you." You oh. know, at least it'll hide the fact that I'm <laughs> sobbing at this day club in yeah. Vegas. Well, luckily he probably thought you had some really amazing ecstasy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Seriously, I'm dead sober. Yeah, yeah. At a day club, totally sobbing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, so, I, I mean, I relate. Yeah. To that. Funny. <laughs> uh, what other people must be like, huh? Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So, so okay. So you're sober. You and I are sober like same amount of time, right? Well, we have the same date, but different okay. years. Different years. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so, so mine's January seventh, two thousand thirteen. Awesome. Okay. Yes. Cool. So, so just hit seven. And you got how old were you when you got sober? Twenty one. Okay. So around yeah. the same age. Yeah. And what? Where you grew up in Orange County, and. Uh, you're very close with your family, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very close. And I feel like I'm one of the few people in the recovery community who are from Orange County. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the the my the first episode, she was from Orange County, and I, I thought the same thing. So this is uh, it's a yeah, it's very there are very few of you here. There's We're, some pluses and minuses because yeah. you run into. Oh, yeah. You know, you run into the people, you pass by the bars and all that kind of stuff. But, but yeah, I'm very close with my family. They're still in the same house I grew up in. Parents are still married. So, so yeah, very close with them, which is nice. Now, are they like hyper dysfunctional or? No, they're actually, you know, and 
I feel like the longer you stay sober, the more you notice. Right. About. Of course. You know. Yeah. But for the most part, no, they're still married. Normal dysfunction. Yes. Still married. My dad has my mom as soulmate in his phone, Aww. like still totally in love and, you know, grew up in a very like loving house. My parents are actually super spiritual. They go to like a spiritual church. So when I came into the program, a lot of stuff was actually already familiar to me. Like my dad used to have me say what I was grateful for. And so there was like a lot of things that they were doing yeah. from an early age. That's actually not only not normal. It's, it's a progressive. Yes. Yeah. So very progressive in that sense. My mom's like a two white wine spritzer and she's tipsy and done. Mm-hmm. And my dad, I've never seen drink. You've never seen him drink. I, I think I saw him take a sip, but he just doesn't drink. So definitely like did not grow up. Does he up. say why? He's very career focused. Doesn't like feeling out of control. Ah, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and also very, like, health conscious. So okay. he's just someone that just never wanted to to drink. So, wow. so yeah, so I definitely did not grow up with a family of a lot of drinkers. I have, like, an interesting sibling situation where I have three older half-brothers who are, like, 20-something years older than me. Okay. And then I have a younger brother who's nine years younger than me. So for the first nine years of my life, I was an only child, basically. So you have three older brothers. How old's the oldest? 55. And the youngest? My youngest brother, or my youngest older brother, is 50. Okay, wow. Yeah, so so they're all much older. So I have like nieces my age. So we kind of have this interesting. That's interesting. So they were kind of closer. So it's almost like brothers are almost uncles. Right, and cousins. Yes. Right, right. right. And then my younger brother is still in college. So we have a pretty big age gap too. My husband has a sister who's nine years older and they're not super close. Is that, that he felt like. They both felt like they grew up as only children. Yes. I think that's definitely the case. And we just, you know, were in such different, you know, areas of life. Like when I was really deep into my drinking, he was very repulsed by it (laughs) and, you know, used to ask, like, why are you doing this? Very valid question. (laughs) Um, And I remember, like, in high school – or like middle school, he had to write a poem for a class and he wrote about like one of my hospitalizations. <gasps> my sister did the same really? thing. Called the broken vase. Swear to God. Really? Yeah. yeah. I still have a picture of it. I like yeah. saved it. So, and now he's in his college uh-huh. experimental phase, which right. he did make it through high school without drinking. because At of, all? At all. Right. Because of you. Because of me. Yeah. So now he's in college and is, you know, trying stuff out and, you know, he'll He's very, like, open with me. We're not – I wouldn't say we're close just because we're in two separate phases. I've heard that it gets better with, you know, when we both get older. But he'll tell me stuff and I want to be like, no, no, please don't tell me. Please don't tell me. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I'm, like, grateful that he's open with me in that that regard. And so when you started experimenting, what was the – or how old were you when you had your first – drink or drug? So I was 15 when I had my first drink and I went through this kind of interesting transition where I went to this tiny school from kindergarten to eighth grade. There was only a hundred kids in the whole school. So super small. And then begged to go to this huge public school because I needed, I don't know what I needed. I needed something. So my first drink, I needed alcohol. (laughs) Yeah. I I didn't know, but I needed alcohol. So uh, my first drink was like the weekend after my freshman year ended. Okay. 
And I was with my like childhood best friend and her mom, who was actually, her mom was the only example of an active alcoholic I had ever seen. So my childhood best friend, like, and her brother got taken away from her. So that was kind of the only like example of alcoholism I had. So she bought us, uh, we were in Laughlin. All good things happen in Laughlin. You had your first drinking experience in Laughlin? I did. I'm so impressed. I know. So it was literally two of us in, um, me and my best friend. The mom wasn't drinking, but she bought us Boone's, like a couple bottles of Boone's Farm. Okay, yeah. So, you know, drink, I think like a bottle and a half. Were you Uh, in a biker bar? We were, no, I was like 50, we were literally just in the hotel room. Oh. So... You know, I was. And I your remember, parents were like, "Yeah, go to Laughlin with." It you. was for like a wedding, I okay. think. Okay. I don't even really remember going okay. to the wedding though. So <laughs> <laughs> completely unnecessary. Yeah. yeah. So I was there, and you know, had the drink, had that feeling of like waiting for it to hit. Yeah. You know, yeah. and <laughs> and then you know, having that feeling of. I, I was always a very anxious child, very anxious, very worried, and so having that feeling of like. Yeah, you know, rush over. And because it was only two of us, like we weren't at a party, I ended up just using my like Nokia phone at the time and (laughs) and drunk dialing like everyone, everyone, you know, including I actually, which I had my first breakup. I had gotten dumped like a week before this happened and the boyfriend was a little older and he was drinking with his friends and kind of always tried to keep me sheltered. And I remember when he broke up with me, he said, don't go drink over it. And then literally that next weekend, I don't know if they were correlated, but I ended up calling him, you know, called everyone. Yeah, showed him. Yeah. So had like a brownout that night, woke up the next morning, so sick, and then like immediately asked if we could do it again that next night. Yeah. So so that like the first experience, it wasn't horrible. It was very embarrassing because of all the voicemails I left. I called it like three in the morning. So it was a lot of voicemails. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And some friends like didn't. Yeah. A lot of recordings, like some on like house phone voicemail. So parents heard too. So that was fun. (laughs) So that was the only part that wasn't good. But other than that, I was, you know, ready to like hit it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Like here we go. Yeah. And uh, did you know, like one of the things that we talk about is like, I had no idea how anxious I was and like, I had no idea how badly I needed this until I experienced it. Did you, did you know that you were that? I don't think so. I was always the kid that threw themselves into all the extracurriculars Mm -hmm. to hide my busy bodiness. Mm And I actually don't even think I really realized how much it calmed me down until, so the first time I got caught drinking, I think was a couple months after the first time. And my parents asked if I liked it. They said, do you like drinking? Hmm. Which I think any normal like 15, 16 year old would say, no, I hated it. Like trying to get out of trouble. And I said, no, I really liked it. It (laughs) It quieted my head. Which was the mm. first time, and I said that at like 15. Yeah. Which I thought was, you know, so interesting. But I mean, I definitely knew I loved the effect and I loved, I always remember feeling like I wanted to be more lighthearted and mm-hmm. like be able, mm-hmm. like I just always felt at a young age really bogged down by my serious, by my inhibitions. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to be more, I don't know, like flowy and all that stuff. And I felt like alcohol allowed me to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, how, when, so your parents asked you that they found out after the first time? Oh, because of the voicemails? Actually, no, they didn't find out after the first time. I think, 
I think it was like four months after my first drink. And I I started drinking as often as a 15-year-old could, like trying to find alcohol. We found like this liquor store that would sell to us. So I think it was like four months in, my parents, another parent found out I gave her child alcohol and then she called my parents naturally. So that was the first time I got caught. But my parents, kind of going back to being a little progressive, they didn't ground me. My dad had me write three essays. Oh, my God. I love him. One essay on the alcohol's effect on a developing brain. One essay on like, I think it was like date rape or something like that. Please tell me he has them. Maybe. But I do remember writing them entirely hungover. Yeah. 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 So um, so he had me write this series of essays (laughs) as my punishment to help me, you know, I don't know, learn from it, which obviously it didn't it didn't work. But I just think that's so funny. I don't I think I only got grounded a couple times, which is pretty miraculous. I think it's just because my parents aren't those kind of parents. Yeah. So um, they're trying something. I mean, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. The problem the problem I see would be like I would never have done it. So that that. Like with certain teenagers, I think that's where you – I would have been like, yeah, not doing that. But I like that you were willing to do it and that you wrote it. And I I don't think it's a terrible idea. I might use it on – Yeah. might use it on my kids. I'm sure they're going to tell me to go f*** myself. Um, But (laughs) – I want you to write about date rape. Yeah. That's an interesting thing. And I like – I find it interesting that they asked you if you liked it. Yeah. They are very – my parents are – very emotional, which growing up with super emotional parents, they both cry at almost anything, commercials, movies, anytime they talk. My mom always, like on Thanksgiving, we talk about what we're grateful for. She cries every time and always says, I can't believe I'm doing this. We're like, we can. You do this every year. (laughs) So, um, but it, it was interesting coming from super emotional parents. I was very not with that. Right. It made me super uncomfortable. uncomfortable. Yeah. So so they were very curious. They always wanted to ask questions, but I, from a super young age, was really closed off to that kind of interaction. So they were always, like, curious to learn more about it. And I think from a really early age, I just said, nope, not going to share that with you. I'm just going to hide it as well yeah. as I can and then yeah. deal with it when you find out about it. But, but I don't really want to, you know, have that kind of relationship. What do you think – Whose children are your older brothers? My dad's. What do you think the effect of having a having you know your dad have children that age, having had a family before yours had on you? I definitely, if any, yeah. I mean, I definitely remember wishing I was closer with my older brothers and always wanting. I always had this desire to be accepted by older people. So even I can remember like in kindergarten, like I would be in daycare and I would go up to like the seventh and eighth graders and try to get like in. So I always had this desire to fit in with them, even though it just wouldn't make sense at that time. So I think that was, you know, one of the only, my, I will say my dad did a really good job of making everyone feel included and it didn't necessarily feel like it was those kids and then us. Right. So we did, you know, vacations together and we all remained really close. So I think the only thing was like this burning desire to be closer with them. So I think I always tried to appear older and more mature mm-hmm. so I could, you know, hang. Did you have questions like why did you have a family before or were was that like – 
so mommy wasn't your first? Like, were there questions around that? I, you know what's so interesting? I don't really think there was. I think the only time it was explained was I tried to call my dad's ex-wife my stepmom. <laughs> and he's like, no. <laughs> he's like, Whoops. definitely not. But she, I mean, easy mistake yeah, to make. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the only time where he was like, let me walk you through this. So, um, but oh. she actually lives nearby, my dad's ex-wife. And yeah. because the nieces and nephews, we like see them yeah. kind of a lot. And my dad always showed how much he loved my mom. So I never felt like it was against my mom that yeah. he had a wife before just because he like showed how much. But were you aware, like w- did it bring an awareness to – like all of my grandparents are divorced, every single one of okay. them, and all but one got remarried. And so I grew up with seven seven grandparents, right? I grew up with these sets of grandparents, um, which was chaotic. And But I – like the idea that they had been married to the other grandparent was – when I found that out, I was like, I'm sorry, what? Yes. You know, like <laughs> it was totally like blew my mind. I didn't understand how that could be. And then when we talked about like – like I was – it was a very – it kind of – I think in some ways it explained something I had never thought of. I had always thought of like two people are together and that's it. And I, at a young age, I wonder – you know, if there were questions, like there's a, you must have had a deep understanding, like, no, sometimes things don't work out. And like, you had a very, you had a healthy example of that, but still an example of it. And I just wonder, like, is, did you think about it? Yeah, I think, I think I was aware of it. And I do think my dad did a pretty good job explaining it. But I will say one thing, my parents, still to this day, my parents are like, my family's a very big, like, everything's great. You know, like, let's, like, for example, um, one of my older brothers back in the early 90s, like, went to jail for, like, three or four years. Oh, wow. Okay. I did not – so that was when I was, like, three to five. Did not find out until I was 15. And I was told by accident by, like, a family member. And we used to they go visit – We used to go visit him every oh, other weekend. Oh, you went. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And it was um, to visit him in college. College, quote, unquote. Oh. So they were very – so I think they tried to just, like, explain it a little bit. But I think for the most part, like, I was sheltered a lot right. in that regard. Right, so, right. But he did. He always said, I'm so grateful this happened right. that way, that I'm so glad that it didn't work out with my ex-wife. I'm so glad I met your mom. My parents had also been together for 11 years – or no, they'd been married for 11 years before I was born. So they had been together for, like, eight, like 18 years by wow. the time I was even born. Wow. So you could tell it was, like – it's always felt like a super long-term yeah, yeah, relationship. Yeah, not a new thing. Yes. Yeah. So how – then how did – you know, you, you wrote these essays and what did your – what did your drinking progress to? Like what – when did it start to pick up? Yeah, I think – so I don't think I ever drank normally. Okay. I do know that. I always well, – night one you browned out. Night one browned out and always – I think I did pick up pretty early on on friends that would say – I don't think I should have anymore. I don't really ever remember having that awareness. Yeah. So never really having that off switch. And then I didn't quite be, I wasn't quite able to figure out what that line was until after I got sober. But when I was 16, I was at this Halloween party and 
got asked by like the cool guys at school to go to like some after party. And I go, only girl there. And kind of one thing led to another. And I ended up being sexually assaulted by these two guys at the party. And I didn't even realize it was wrong until after I got sober mm-hmm. and didn't realize. But honestly, right after that was when things got things got like I think the blackouts got I was definitely like a very early blackout drinker. I think they became more frequent than not after that point. But yeah, it was interesting. I didn't I didn't tell anyone until after I got sober that that happened. So I think this happens a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people, um, I, you know, I know several of them who, you know, the, it's we like put it in a place, like we make sense of it, right? Because we have to. Mm-hmm. How did you make sense of this situation? Like, why was it not clear to you? Like what, or I don't know if you want to talk about what happened or like what was the scenario that where you were able to like explain that away somehow? Yeah. So that night I was like making out with one of the guys. So I felt I rationalized it as being, as asking for it, as being my fault. Right. And I actually don't really remember the actual assault, which is good. But like the last thing I remember is the other guy coming in. And the last thing I remember is saying no. Yeah. And then that's it. So I just thought it was my fault. Right, right. I shouldn't have been at a house by myself with like a bunch of guys. Um, I shouldn't have been, you know, like interacting with one of the guys. So... So, yeah. So I think I really rationalized it as just being my fault and just kind of being a bad situation that came out of that. What's really interesting is I didn't realize it was wrong until I was watching an order of law and order, like the special victims unit one. And the case was literally my story. And it went to court. And I was like, oh, like that's not. And I think that was when kind of this you know, it was before like the Me Too movement and all of that. But it, I think it was when people started realizing like what kind of consent can someone yeah. give when they're that intoxicated. Yeah. And I'm just so I like I thought about it. I'm so glad I remember saying no, because if I didn't, I don't know if I would have been able to even now determine that it was wrong. And I actually just told my mom about this like a year and a half ago, kind of after going through therapy. I like brought her into my therapist's office and told her what happened. But I think, yeah, it just made me feel like a bad, it made me feel very dirty and it made me feel like a bad person. And I think that's what escalated the drinking was trying to get that feeling to go away. And I think it was compounded by the fact that my therapist explained to me that when someone goes through an assault, they either go one way where they just stay away from men or they go the other way and become very promiscuous. And I was the latter where I became super promiscuous. So it kind of just was like, Maybe this is just me. Yeah. Maybe I'm just, yeah. you know, yeah, like, promiscuous. And right. maybe this is like how I get attention and all this stuff. So it made it even harder to determine that it was wrong because I can, if it was so wrong, why, why would I keep yeah. doing it? Yeah. You know? Yeah. When you came to, so like that was the last thing you remember. What mm-hmm. was the, what was the come to portion of it? So yeah. That, where you were like, uh oh. So it was, The next morning I like came to, I was like on the couch downstairs at this house and I had, I played water polo in high school, Mm -hmm. literally had to like rush to a water polo tournament, like probably still very drunk. And like the guys ended up just dropping me off at like a friend's house so I could like get ready and go to this tournament. And I just remember feeling 
super embarrassed. And then I remember a close friend came to me like a couple weeks later and was like, oh, I heard you had a threesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't like, I was like, and then that was, yeah. But I said, oh no, no, no. You know, I did it not. And I actually just opened up to that friend, you know, kind of a year and a half ago too. And I said like, Hey, this is what happened, you know? And so it was like hearing about it from other people and then this kind of reputation. So other, so it did go around to like, it wasn't a, it wasn't just that person. No, I think it did. I don't really know. I started very like probably at that point, not wanting to pay attention to that stuff. That was when I like started to not know, not want to know what I did during a blackout. Yep. When someone said, do you want, like, do you know what happened last night? I would say, yeah. And then just stop the Mm -hmm. conversation. So I think that's when I started, you know, to have this, like, feeling very separate and very isolated. Yeah. Because I, that's when, like, the secrets really started. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's, um, you know, I remember getting, you know, I have a couple of experiences of, like, remembered, like, real assault where it's all, all the pieces are, you know, how you would think it would be. But I have a lot of situations in my drinking and using where I just went along because that was going to be easier, Mm -hmm. you know? And it was like, and, and I think that was as a result of those previous situations, right? Like, like situations like you describe where things happen and then you get, you know, further into your drinking and you're in situations you know you shouldn't be in. And if anybody walked you through like the situation, you'd be like, yeah, that was a, probably a terrible idea. And this was probably really clearly going to happen, but you're in it. And I remember thinking like, you know, when the Me Too movement came out and I remember thinking to myself, like, I don't even know how many times, like, because there were so many times where I thought to myself, if I say no right now, there could be a problem. So I just should just go along with this. And I remember doing that more times than I care to remember. And those people would tell you I consented, right? Like, I I mean, I did. I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell them that I didn't. But your mindset after something like that happens changes to assign different levels of um, safety and what's going to be the best, like, least resistant, you know, way out of this situation. And I think that, um, you know, I I think that you just – you do. You, like, find a place to put it. And and I definitely went, like, the more promiscuous route too, which made each different incident of things that happened over time – made the last one further away. You know, it was like made the, made the like difficult one even further away. And so I was able to like hide in that, in that promiscuity. I was able to hide in all the other circumstances where I was like, well, I shouldn't have been there. I shouldn't have been doing that. And, and I think that I, I think it's pretty, like, I think, and I think many women who aren't alcoholics would tell you the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, kind of what I figured out through, I did, you know, a year and a half of EMDR therapy, which helped a ton just to, just to look at it for what it is. Yeah. And it took me a long time to even be able to call it a rape. Yeah. Like I kept using this term. They took advantage. Right, right, right. And I remember the first time I said it in therapy and my therapist said, that's what it was. You know, I just want you to know like that's what it was. Yeah. And I think what I did subconsciously was I had something taken from me 
So because I didn't want, and mind you, this assault happened the night after I lost my virginity. So it was like, oh wow, okay, really early on, very yeah. twisted. Like it really twisted my mindset around sex and around relationships with right. men. And because I had that taken from me, I wanted to become the aggressor. Yeah. So I almost had this like yes conquering thing where yeah. I wanted to like yep set my sights on someone and like yeah. go take you know be yeah. the one that like takes that right. So. So it did become like this thing, but it was interesting because it was, I still didn't really share about it with people and, you know, reputation precedes you. So it's like that kind of became this thing at school and that I just didn't talk about literally with anyone. Like, it's just crazy that a 16 year old girl going through all this just decided to like not tell friends, not tell, you know, not tell anyone. Because... When you, when something like that happens, like I had, I had, I, I was day raped in sobriety okay, and wow. <laughs> which was like blew my mind, yeah. blew my mind. Cause I was like, I've, I, you know, I go to river run, like Laughlin, yeah. do all these things and I, nobody touched me. I was fine. Like, and the, this situation with a U, um, UCSD soccer play, like situation where for all intents and purposes, I would have never thought I was in danger. Mm-hmm. Seriously. And what I know from that situation versus like all the intoxicated ones is that you like people don't want to when they know the person, like with the people around, even the people who were there, like they can't they don't know what to do with that. When their friend Johnny us like they find out their friend Johnny assaulted, you know, Sarah, they're like, I what no way. No way. They can't handle that. And and understandably, like, if I found out that my friend, you know, assault, like, my good friend assaulted someone, did something that was, like, I, what do I do with that? Do I, you know, like, that pulls into question all my morals as the friends. Do I stop talking to them? I mean, and imagine putting yourself in a high school situation. Yeah. Right? So, Where like. it's, like, we don't know how to deal with much. Yeah. 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 And, like, so I watched what adults did in that situation where I was like, I'm sober. Like there was not this like situation of like, I'm confused about what happened. Okay. Like I, I know what happened, like, but it was so, it was such a conflict of a moral conflict for the friends and the people around. They could not handle it. And they didn't do, they did not respond. And I thought, wow, like, oh, that's what happens. You're in high school. And like, what are you supposed to do? Not be friends with the person you're in school with? not go to English class with them, like be the one person who's going to be the vigilante who stands up and says, you know, that's not right. It At the risk of, well, I don't know what the circumstances were and this person was intoxicated, that person, I wasn't there. You know, like it makes total sense to me why as a 16-year-old girl, you look at the situation and you're like, yeah, me being honest about this or me going deeper on this or me thinking too much about this does me zero good because none of his friends or none of their friends are going to be like, yeah, you're right. You know, Joey's a bad kid. We're going to, we're going to not, you know, be his friend anymore. Like that's just not going to happen. So you go the other way and like try to figure out, okay, like this is my new normal. How do I deal with this? Like, should I just go with the, like, I'm a promiscuous hot babe? Like, I guess that's what I'm going to do. Like what else, what other choices are there? Yeah, that's a really good point. I actually hadn't thought about that, but but yeah, it wasn't like I think I just had to own it. Yeah, you had to the, own it. That's the only way 
I could make <laughs> right. sense of it and like, compartmentalize it. You can either be the girl who says I was I was assaulted at this party by these two guys and have people be upset that you're like calling someone a rapist, or you can be the girl who's like, yeah, I have threesomes, right? Yeah, like that. Those are your options. Yeah, and and I think as a sixteen year old girl, like. I mean, I can tell you being the 20, whatever I was, like 22-year-old sober girl saying, like, this is what happened, not fun. Like, not fun. Nothing happened to him. His friends are still friends with him. People still know him. His life did not change. And I was the girl who was like, yo, this is what just happened. Like, this was not cool, blah, blah, blah. And, like, really no – nothing comfortable came through for – you know, I I, I don't regret that, but I just – it's like – I I didn't get anything out of that. So I can imagine being 16. I wasn't in school with any of these people. Yeah. Like, what else do you do? Yeah. And I think, too, this memory just popped in my head, but I, when I was, like, 17, so I started becoming isolated from my group of friends at school. Right. Because there was this weird, no one's going to ask me about my antisocial behavior, but they, like, couldn't quite support it. So I remember... I asked this friend to send me a study guide for a class and the attachment that came with it was a two to three page rhyming poem written about me and my promiscuity and my behavior drinking. And I just left it. Like I, I did ask, I said, you know, me like passive aggressive. I don't think you meant to send this to me. And I never (laughs) dug into it. Who wrote it? Right. I still went on this big senior trip with this whole group of girls, never found out who actually wrote it. And it's like, I just, I just didn't want to like touch it. And I think as high school progressed and as my drinking progressed, I started pulling these mini geographics of like linking up with different groups of friends. Cause I just, it just became like too painful to kind of stay in that one spot. Yeah. You know, that Netflix thing, it just, just popped in my head. Don't whoever don't can kill cats or whatever yes. it is like <laughs> you know it's like you can it, it, in this this is probably a horrible analogy but like you can go on the internet and hurt cats whatever and people hunt these people down right like <laughs> like in whatever corner of the world you are they're going to find you whatever but in a situation like that no one wants to go near you know like we have these certain topics certain situations right like where it's completely unacceptable. No one's going to accept you. Like there are, you know, animal killing, pedophile, like there are, there's, you know, the like topics, right? But then situations like this, like, like is, bullying. Yeah. Or... Yeah. Like, is anyone really going to hunt down who wrote that poem? Is anyone yeah. going to really go and find out like who assault, like assaulted whom while they were drunk? Is anyone going to want, no, nobody touches that stuff. Yeah. And so, and I think that you and most of us, you know, young girls, we know it. Like we know that and we either we've seen it or we intuitively know that. Yeah. And I will say there was a couple friends, two particular in high school that really were concerned okay. about me. Yeah. And so kind of fast forward, you know, the blacking out got worse. The consequences got worse and worse. So the summer going into my senior year of high school, I decided to go on a Habitat for Humanity build in New Orleans to (laughs) look good on the college application. So the first night we were there, it was like four of my friends, my cousin and my sister-in-law, who was like our chaperone. And we drank the first night. And 
I blacked out, but through a series of things, I was standing on this ledge smoking a cigarette and completely lost consciousness. And I fell 11 feet. Oh my God. Off a ledge straight onto a dock, like straight onto my face. Like friends thought I was dead because I was like completely unconscious. Like you You weren't, do they think you were unconscious before you hit the ground? I think I, I think I did lose consciousness because my cousin who was standing right there said you were standing there. And then all of a sudden you went down, down. And like, I could see my teeth through my lip, like broken nose, had to get like 30 stitches. So that happened first night. So I literally had to build houses like with my face all. They made you build houses still? I mean, they didn't make me, they didn't let me use power tools because I was like on all these pain meds. They just gave me like a hammer and told me like. They st- <laughs> they didn't send you home? They didn't send, I mean, I, I don't know if they didn't send me home or I like, you I refused. You broke your to- nose and you. You broke my nose. Like, I have this picture. Like, my lip was, like, four times its normal size. Like, super crazy concussion. I mean, nowadays, that's, yeah. you know, people pay a lot of money. I know. <laughs> I know. I was actually looking at the picture. I'm like, man, that looks yeah. like people yeah. I know's lips. Yeah. Um, and so I – so that happened. We, like, lied to all the parents. Like, we all got together and we were like, Kendra slipped and fell. Oh. So we had this like collective lie and then two, big little lies. Situation. Big little lies. Yeah. Kendra slipped and fell. Yeah. It happened in the yeah. morning, not at night. Oh. Like, well, didn't you go to, didn't someone take you? No, they didn't take me to the hospital until oh, the, the next morning. Oh, for the love of God. No one wanted to get in trouble. A couple of my friends were like, you need to call an ambulance. And so do you remember coming to? The first thing I remember was being in the house, looking at myself in the mirror. That was the first thing I remember and literally could see my teeth like through my chin. You have a little scar right there. uh, Yeah, on the inside too, yeah. Oh, a big scar on the inside. Mm -hmm. So that was all all open? That was like open. And no one took... (laughs) And no one... They... One like friend called her brother. And I will say there were definitely friends there that wanted to call the ambulance. Shout out to the friends who wanted to call the ambulance. But one friend called her brother who was in like search and rescue. And he he said like, take your fist and dig it into her sternum. Because that's like the most painful thing you can do to someone. So they were like, if anything, that will wake her up. So that woke me up. Oh, wait a minute. That was because you... I was still like laying there. The fall didn't wake you up. No. Like, they just thought I was, like, my cousin was like, I thought you were dead. Because it was 11, yeah, it was 11 feet. So. And you didn't wake up to stop yourself. Like, there was no. no, Like, fully broke your face. Fully could have broken my neck and died. And it was crazy because when I was in college, a girl, like, it was a guy. A guy on spring break fell, like, the exact same distance on spring break and, like, broke his neck and died. So I, like, and then three days later, we're, like, walking down Bourbon Street And one of the girls had a drink and I was like, can I have some? And I remember one of my friends was like, Kendra, are you out of your mind? Like, look at your face. (laughs) You're like, yeah, look at my face. I need a drink. I'm like, I need one of these giant slushies. Yeah. So I can just see like a straw like through the side. (laughs) I just remember trying to eat SpaghettiOs, like lifting my mouth open and like putting like SpaghettiOs in my mouth, being able to eat. It was – and I we got away with the lie, got home, and then – The weekend before my senior year started, a friend was having like a jungle-themed party. So I go to this party dressed as Jane from Tarzan, and there's like a lot of weird situations that happened that night. But at like 3 in the morning, I was driving with a friend in the front seat, lost consciousness behind the wheel. Kind of same thing happened. Like my body just shut down from the amount of alcohol. Yeah, because that's not a blackout. No, that's like... That's like, see you later. Yeah. Yeah. So lost consciousness behind the wheel, drifted across eight lanes of traffic in Long Beach, and crashed into the outside fence of the Long Beach airport. 
Oh, wow. Were you on the 405? No, I was on Lakewood Boulevard. Okay. Yeah. 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 Still, that's Yeah. Huge. So drifted across. Luckily, like, didn't hit anyone. Yeah. My foot, like, slipped off the gas pedal. So I, like, hit it not going that fast. But I was still unconscious. And my friend was so drunk, too, that, like, she didn't, she didn't wake up until the fire trucks got there. So you guys are both into the fence and out. Yes. So like, and, they, they don't know whether you're dead or sleeping. Yeah. And okay. luckily a woman saw it happen. So she called 911 because they said, like, if you sat there for a half hour, like, done. Why? Just my, like, body was shutting down from the amount of alcohol. By the time oh, they finally you... got me to, like, they had to pry the doors open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, by the time they finally got me to the hospital, I was, like, 0.34. But that was, like, So it wasn't, a like, while. a you weren't going to pass out and then wake up later, like, oh, what's happening? Like, you were actually alcohol poisoning. Yes. Like, probably close to a coma soon. So I was like, I woke up the next day, strapped to the bed in the ICU. Mm. I had to, I got strapped down because I was trying to, in the middle of the night, like pull out all my IVs and all that stuff. Like neck brace on. I tried to get out of the bed and I had a catheter in. Ooh. So I was like, ow. And the first thing that like this woman came in who was like a social worker and asked like if I knew where I was, if I knew what happened, like no idea. Yeah. And they, like, told me what happened. I ended up having, like, this full-blown panic attack in the hospital. And you know what they gave me? A brown paper bag. I was in the (laughs) ICU. (laughs) There's such funny moments and stuff like that where, like, I I had an overdose, a heroin overdose, and I was in the – whatever. I don't know if it was the ICU, but it was definitely the, like, you're in big doo-doo room. And they came over with my uh, sheet, and they're like, you smoke? That's going ki- to – I swear to God. I swear to God because I was like, where am I? There's a Stanford – just FYI, Stanford emergency room, whatever. And the nurse asked me about my – told me my smoking was going to be a problem. Swear to God. Yep. Anyway. Oh, my God. So there's these moments where yeah. people are like – where you just like – When I think I was also still intoxicated and the nurse had braided my hair and I was like so moved by the fact that she – I was yeah. like, someone braided my hair and like started crying. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, you know, then parents walk in. Oh, yeah. And- all that stuff. So, but I remember now looking back, like I remember laying in that bed. I was in the ICU for like three days. I was supposed to go to Palm Springs with girlfriends the next day. And I remember like I asked my mom for her phone and I called him and I was like, um, I'll, I'll be there later today. And my mom's like, you're not going to Palm Springs. Like yeah. I was in the hospital for three days. So what were they doing? Why did you need to be in the ICU? Just because my like, body, like so they were organs detoxing? were like kind of starting to shut down. Okay. So, so I had, you know, tubes like coming out of everywhere. And so, and I remember being in there like full knowing I was going to drink again. Yeah. Like, I don't even think I made that empty promise of like, oh, it's never going to happen again. Yeah. But after that point, no DUI, no DUI. It was like the craziest loophole because it happened at the airport. It was under airport jurisdiction and the Long Beach airport police don't deal with this frequently. So... (laughs) So they didn't know that they had to go to the hospital to follow up because that's what the social worker was like, the police are going to be here any minute. So I like got away with it. Yeah. You're like, great. Give me another one of those paper bags. (laughs) I need a second paper bag. Yeah. So they, I never got a DUI. Because the Long Beach police department, I mean, the Long Beach airport Airport police would have to come to the. Would have to go to the Long, would have to go to Long Beach Memorial which is so crazy. This all happened in, like, the hospital I was born in. So it was, like, such this weird. Yeah. So, and the um, friend? What happened? So we both got put in this drug and alcohol education program yeah. that 
I only made it halfway through because I like failed the drug test and told my parents it was stupid, like a stupid program. Yeah. And so, which is funny because I've gone back and spoken at that program. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course. Um, so my parents ended up buying a breathalyzer. I was like no longer allowed to stay at friends' houses. So anytime, so I had to come home. How old were you? I was 17. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I was 17 when that all happened. And it was literally the weekend before my senior year started. So like senior year day walk in and I felt like, like my water polo coach was like, we need to talk. Like we heard you crash into the airport. Um, (laughs) you're like honest mistake. Yeah. I'm like honest mistake. I thought there was a flight. Yeah. I still don't know where I was going, which is weird. Yeah. So, but yeah, so I started, I, that's when I like started smoking weed every day. Cause I was like, I have to do something. Yeah. Like this alcohol thing's getting a little tricky. Yeah. This alcohol thing's getting a little sticky, getting breathalyzed every night. So, and that was really when I think I became too antisocial for my friends. Right. And the friend who wanted to call the ambulance in New Orleans after this incident, she called my parents and she goes, that's not what happened in New Orleans. Like, she was drinking. Mm-hmm. Like, so everything came out. Right, right. Okay. And, of course, like, totally got defensive to that friend. Yeah. Like, what a bad friend you are yeah. for telling on me and all this stuff. So that was when I, like, I went to a couple AA meetings that year because part of this program I had to go. And I thought, like, I went to the Canyon Club. I thought, like, cool stories. <laughs> cool stories, bro. Cool story, bro. Yeah. Not for me. Yeah. And um, so that's when I started, like, hanging out in Laguna and Newport. I just kind of started jumping around just because, you know, it just wasn't just wasn't working, you know. But – and what's weird is at that time, I was, like, still getting super good grades. I got into USC, which was, like, the dream school I wanted to go to. So, um, so things just kind of kept progressing. And, yeah, so graduated high school, got into this dream college. And then you go to USC. What you would you – study. (laughs) I studied business. And I think probably the biggest thing that happened, I was like a spring admit, which means like you're good enough to get in, but you're not good enough to start in the fall. So we have to wait until people Hmm. drop out after their first semester and then you're admitted. Interesting. So I ended up going to community college for my first semester. But right around this time is when I met the guy who like, you know, changed everything. And so this is like, funny telling this story now, but my mom enrolled me in Jenny Craig when I was 17. <laughs> Great confidence booster. <laughs> this is like a big plot twist. Yeah. <laughs> this, is a, this is a big sideways. Yeah, right? So she enrolled me in Jenny Craig when Did I was like Did she 17. talk to you about it? <laughs> I like, I think she's she like, you're saw- going to USC. You better get into Jenny Craig. Those bitches are serious. <laughs> Skinny bitches at USC. Yeah. I think she saw me trying to lose weight. And, and so I think as a, try, as a way to be helpful... <laughs> She, like, she put, yeah. Yeah. So I joined Jenny Craig, and because I was under 18, I got, like, a counselor that I had to meet with, and... Were you overweight? Not, like... Yeah. If I look at myself now, I'm like, you look great, you know? I'd like to be as fat as I was (laughs) Yeah, I thought I was fat. Yeah. No, I definitely was not, so... But my Jenny Craig counselor was this guy named Rick, who... um, Yeah. I, so... (laughs) Oh, this this is good. It does not go well. So I'm like, mom, you want to enroll me in Jenny Craig? I'm going to fall in love with the counselor that's 12 years older than me. Yes. So I, you know, we like, there's like flirtation and stuff happening when I'm 17. And then when I'm 18... Really? Around the meal planning? Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. He like started like training, Uh like personal training me when I was 18. (laughs) Gonna hit the gym. Your poor mom. Yeah. Oh, I could just see being like, oh, I really blew it. Yeah. Yeah. So 
we start dating. So I'm 18. He's 30. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, at first it was like, you know, I talked about wanting to always like be older mm-hmm. and like fit in. So I'm like, oh, I'm with a 30-year-old. Like this feels cool. And he was like super gentleman, you know, compared to like – yeah, 18-year-old guys yeah. in high school, he's, like, you know, yeah. taking me to nice dinners and knows all, like, the good places and all this stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, so we start dating, and I'm going to, like, a local community college, so we're hanging out, you know, a ton, and, like, things are moving really quickly in the relationship. I, like, tell my parents about him. not They're not happy. And I start having these, like, drinking incidents with him where, like, what like our first like night we stayed at a hotel it was down on Balboa like I like left the hotel room <laughs> to just like I don't know I think I was like looking for cigarettes or something but I like left the hotel room you didn't he want has, to like count no the idea where I am I'm on like a fake ID because I'm like 18 right so he's like running around Balboa trying to find me <laughs> so we're like stuff is happening like that but then like six months into the relationship I think it's how he always was, but he turned, like, very quickly into this, like, very narcissistic, abusive, not physically, but, like, very emotionally and verbally abusive person. Mm -hmm. And by that point, I was, like, so invested in him. Yep. So, so you know, it really messed with my – it ended up really messing with my college experience because – when he turned, it was when he saw me texting this other guy and he kind of was like, I don't trust you living on campus. Yeah. So we're going to get an apartment in Long Beach and you're going to live there with me. Yeah. Um, and of course it was like all placed in this way of like, yeah, I love you. Like yeah. if you loved me, you would do this. Yeah. So, um, so that relationship like just turned super sour, super quickly. One of like my last really bad drinking incidents is with him we were at in Ladera at like his friend's birthday party and I'm start drinking at like noon. Um, and by eight o'clock we get in this huge screaming match at Taste of Ladera. And, you know, we're screaming, like shoving each other, and we get home and we have this huge fight, like breaking things. I like ended up cutting my wrist, which is like never something I like wanted to do or ever pictured myself doing. Right. And then I, like, run to a friend's house and tell them everything that happened. And so the next day he was like, if you love me, um, you're going to change your phone number. You're going to delete your social media. And we're going to move to Irvine. Because I, like, I went to high school in Long Beach. So, like, I knew a ton of people around there. So literally he, like, wiped me. I mean, I did it myself. But he, <laughs> like, wiped me from the face of the earth. <laughs> okay. But there's a good joke in here about, like, how wiping you from the face of the earth starts, like, social media, right? New phone number and Irvine. Irvine. Yeah. I'm going to take you from this, like, fun place, and I'm going to move you to Woodbridge. Yeah, exactly. You're going to Irvine. (laughs) What, Irvine? No! I changed my phone number. Irvine, for people who don't know, Irvine's in Orange County. It's a very – it was, like, the safest city in America, and it's (laughs) – it's, it was the safest city. It's, yeah. it's, it's a very suburban, cookie-cutter, cookie safe city. Yeah, so I went from living in Long Beach where I went to high school, had a ton of friends, to Irvine where I'm 19. The only place to go out in the neighborhood is Chili's <laughs> in Olive Garden. And so I go from that to this, like literally right. not knowing anyone. So I 
like there was rumors that I got pregnant and just ran away because no one knew. Like literally, they just, thought you were in Mac. You might as yeah. well have been in Mexico. She went to TJ, Irvine, or TJ. I don't yeah. remember which, but all the same. So I literally like got wiped from the face of the earth, and then the control in that relationship yeah. got worse. It was yeah. like daily screaming matches, calling me horrible names, and then of course in the beginning. He wants to know everything about me. Oh, yeah. And so I, like, tell him Oops. all – I tell mm-hmm. him everything. And then slowly but surely, like, that starts being used against yeah. me. Yeah. So – and I think – I definitely think my parents were aware that something was off with it. But Rick also stopped me from drinking. And so I think they were kind of in this position where yeah. they're like – Yep. I don't want her drinking because that's what's going to, like, kill her, you know. Because my mom, I think at 17, first confronted me that she thought I was an alcoholic and and all of that. So so I think they were put in this kind of weird situation where they're like – my, we got to weigh the lesser of two evils. My Rick, my version of Rick um, took me to my first uh, AA meeting and tried to get me sober, told my par- – sat down with my parents. Like, I'm taking her to me. Same – like, definitely they were like – uh, what do we, you know, same thing. Yeah. So they, I think they just were kind of at a loss. So I was in that relationship for three years and. How long did you live in Irvine? I a year and a half because okay. it was like half of our relationship. Okay. And were, did you, were you still at USC? Like, I was still, at, I was driving there? to USC, oh, like not the, making any friends. Talk about a punishment. Yeah. Drive. Yeah. And my classes were like from eight to six. So I literally sat in like three hours of traffic and oh. like, it's not that he wasn't drinking. I would get home and he would ask me to make him like a martini. So I'm like an alcoholic, like, you know. But you're not drinking. I'm not. I would drink every once in a while, but it would be the kind of thing where he would say, okay, we're going to go to this barbecue. You can have two drinks. And if I had three, like, he would say, hey, you can't have that. So I would, like, go to our house and, like, chug stuff. I was, like, figuring out ways. Ways. Okay. Yeah. But I was definitely very dry. Like, I was a very dry alcoholic in that relationship. And what finally ended it was... I was in Wisconsin with my family, which we would take this trip. We take this trip every year. And we were drinking one night and Rick had gone to bed. And in a blackout, I told my siblings everything. I was like, I cut my wrists. Like, this relationship's terrible. He's like sucking the life out of me. Like, I, he makes me feel like a piece of crap every day, calls me names, using me for money. Like, I just told them everything. And the next morning, I that was the first time I had said anything about that out loud because I wasn't talking to anyone. I was talking to my parents solely to keep financial yeah. support. Yeah. But other than that, I wasn't talking to anyone. So I finally said it out loud, and I was like, this relationship, like, has to end. So we, like, broke up. And then this is, like, the craziest story. So we break up in Wisconsin, go home. Together. Together. Three days later – it's not a funny story, but it's kind of funny. So he's at Goat Hill with his friends and is walking across Newport Boulevard in Costa Mesa and gets hit by a car. Oh. He survived. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's walking and he just gets hit by this van that's coming Wait, off the 55. <laughs> I'm telling you, Irvine, not as safe as you think. Wait, so did he <laughs> – you broke up in in Wisconsin. Yes. And came you, home to Irvine. And then you get on a flight together. Yes. I bet that was not fun. And then we were going to kind of just figure it out. Okay. Because we were living together. But yeah. then he gets hit by this car okay. and, like, can't walk. So we lived together for six months. Oh, my Together. God. He's in a wheelchair. So he's on, like, a ton of pain. That's when I started, like, first trying pain meds okay. and, like... So it's very dysfunctional, but we're living together for like six months. Are you together at this time? 
kind of, but not really. So it took another like six months to like get to the. Is out. he still in a wheelchair? No, I think he's okay. I actually, you know what's so crazy? He's never had social media, so I have no idea where he is yeah. at all. So I haven't seen him since I had a week sober. So literally no idea where he lives, if he's alive. Like I've tried looking him up. Like I, he's like off the grid. Okay. So we end up breaking up and I move down to San Clemente and kind of find myself in like the bar scene there. Mm-hmm. That's when I start kind of escalating to other drugs and – you know, kind of the whole thing. Like I pick up right where I left off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so how old are you when you moved to San Clemente? 20. Okay, and then you got sober at 21. Mm-hmm. So what was the thing that forced you or made you want to get sober? So it definitely wasn't like – it was nothing dramatic that happened the day I got sober. So – but there was – like that last year was like definitely – I lived in San Clemente and then I moved to downtown Huntington where I was like a half a block from all the bars mm-hmm. when I was 21. So, you know, there's a lot more incidences like ending up in the hospital. Um, I woke up one morning missing my front tooth, <laughs> like out of the hangover. Wait, tell us about that. So it happened in Huntington. I guess I was like at a bar in Huntington and my friends, I had this thing where I would like just drink till I lost consciousness, like standing up. Yeah, apparently. So that happened and I went straight into a bar stool. So I knocked this tooth out, my front tooth out. And that is a party foul. Party foul. And my friends were, the friends I was with at that time were like big party friends because that's who you end up with yeah, by the end. Yeah. And they don't want to leave because it happened pretty early in Huntington, like at like maybe 10, 30 or 11. They so they're literally leave. feeding me cocaine. I'm like out cold. And they're like literally trying to put cocaine in my mouth Good to friends. like get me to wake up. Right. They didn't notice my tooth was gone either because <laughs> I was like just out and my mouth was closed. Was it like half? It was almost all. Almost all. And, yeah. And, like, n- they missed that? Yeah, because I was, like, out and my mouth was, like, closed. So they were trying to just – yeah, they were trying to, like, feed me cocaine to get me going. And they were like, oh, my God, we have to take her home. Like, this sucks. So so what ended up ultimately leading me to get sober was I – the one person I kept in touch with with my drinking was my cousin, who's now, like, my best friend. But she's the only person I would tell what was happening because she wouldn't be judgmental of me. And we used to party a lot together. So I would tell her, like, if I had a blackout, and I remember, like, the week before I got sober, I had these friends from high school that I hadn't seen or hung out with since I wiped myself off the face of the earth. So it was really important to me because this was, like, this reuniting thing after a couple years. And I remember telling my cousin, like, I can't blackout tonight. Like, I have to be, like, a good host, and I want – I haven't seen them in so long. Woke up the next morning – at like my brother's friend's house, no phone. Like I literally ditched these two girls. They had to call a boyfriend to like come pick them up. And I remember thinking like, wow, I can't not black out even if I don't want to. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so like that was like a seed kind of planted in my head. And then I went out drinking for like Sunday fun day. And I was like mixing pain meds at that time. Like I was trying to figure out like that perfect concoction to like allow me to drink how I wanted to. So I went out drinking for like Sunday fun day and I woke up at my parents' house on Monday morning, (laughs) like upstairs in their office. And I remember thinking, oh gosh, like I didn't have a phone. And then my like super sweet dad comes in and he's like, so uh, not a big deal, but the police have your purse. Like you tried to steal someone's phone. 
So uh, we'll, Not have a big to, deal. we'll have to go back and get that later. And then he yeah. just left. And I was like, ugh. So I knew the next person that was going to walk in was going to be my mom. And my mom and I had always been the one that had butted heads on my drinking. And, and I remember thinking like, okay, what's going to be like the excuse this time? Like school stress, like still getting over Rick, didn't eat enough. Like I just was trying yeah, to yeah, figure yeah. out what's my angle. And like it was just blank. Yeah. Like nothing came up. And so she walked in and all of a sudden I was like, I need help which is the first time I think I had ever said that. And we both just cried. And she said, I know, no shocker, you know. And then the cra- like then this crazy series of events happened that I ended up logging onto Facebook. So I was like trying to figure out, I didn't have a phone, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out what happened. And so my like older brother's friend messaged me on Facebook and he's like, how are you? And I decided to say, I think I have a drinking problem. <laughs> I'm super scared. Yeah. And he's like, I've actually been going to AA meetings to help with like this drug thing I've been having. Um, <laughs> do you want me to pick you up today and take you to a meeting? And I said, okay. So I go to Howe Hall, like the noon meeting on a Monday and there was people, which uh, in Costa Mesa in Huntington Beach. Huntington. So it was definitely like a crowd I would normally not have mixed with. I there was like a guy wearing goggles and a cape, like talking to himself. <laughs> a lot of homeless people. Yeah, how hot? Not exactly. Yeah, it was definitely not. But I'm so glad I went there because they read more about alcoholism, and that was the first time I heard alcoholism explained in a way that was like I can't explain it other than that I was so relieved, like oh my gosh, I'm not. Because I just remember thinking like, I'm just such a bad person. Mm. And you know, like how it relates, how it would relate later to God is like my dad, like I mentioned, is super spiritual. And he used to say that like God, like we're all made perfect in the eyes of God. And I remember thinking like, I must've been skipped because like, I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm like, I don't know right from wrong. I'm stealing from friends. I'm stealing from stores. I'm stealing from my parents. I'm lying to everyone. Like I'm stealing friends, boyfriends. Like I'm not a morally good person. So I just thought, I just thought I was like an innately bad person. And so when I heard more about alcoholism read, I'm like, oh, like I have alcoholism. Yeah. I'm not a bad person. So I heard, they read that. And I think because it like perked my ears up, I listened like fully to what people shared and I related to the homeless people. Yep. And so that was like, okay, like I belong in AA and it was a week before my last semester at USC started. And so I did like a night IOP and, you know, like got sober and, and, you know, started going to meetings and started working the program and graduated college with like four months sober. And it just, it was like, I can't, yeah, it just felt like I have this journal entry from my first day sober of when I read the big book for the first time. And it says in the journal, it says, I feel like I've been hit by lightning. Like just everything in my Mm. life just clicked all at once. Yeah. And it was just this huge, and I remember feeling scared that I could never like, you know, that drinking wasn't going to be on the table anymore, but more than anything, I was just so relieved. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you had hit that hit that bottom. Yeah. Yeah, It's pretty, uh, I talk about how like I thought I was schizophrenic because of the voices and then they were like, yeah, but it's your voice. So you're not schizophrenic, you're an alcoholic. Oh, interesting. And like, yeah. And how I was like, oh, thank God. You know, I was like, okay, this is a, we have a problem. Like we have a real problem. We can't tell anybody about it. And you do like, you do think that there's something like, you know, I, I will say this. 
there are some people who come into Alcoholics Anonymous or 12-step or what have you who have a drinking problem who are bad people. Like, (laughs) you know, you take the drugs and alcohol away and, like, you still are left with who they are. But I would say many of us can be trained and work through out of that. But it is really scary to come into a situation thinking, like, I don't know how to stop. Like, I steal from people. I lie to people on command automatically, like I can make myself believe it, like whatever it is, how are you going to help me? And like then come in to read and hear about it and go, wow, that like really sounds like me. But also to hear homeless people and people who don't look anything like us saying the same things, like really like you in some ways you're like, is this a good thing or a bad? Like, you know, am I, am I totally screwed or what's happening here? But Yeah, there's definitely this feeling like, okay, well, at least I know what's wrong, like, as opposed to just going through, you know, the misery that is the end, the end stages of of addiction. Yeah. And I'm fully convinced that if I would have kept drinking, I don't think I would have been around much longer just because the drinking I was doing was like hitting my head. Well, like, I was just going to say like all of, and like, I was living alone. Losing the consciousness thing is yes. in and of itself. I mean, that is just without the drinking is dangerous. Yeah. So all of that and and I think then there was that added element of once I got sober, you know, especially doing my fourth step, I was lying, cheating, stealing, not drinking. Yeah. So it was like cuz I did I had that thought I think a lot of us have is I'm going to get sober. And I'm going to be awesome right off the bat, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, because it's like, oh, this is the only the drinking is the only problem. Right. Once I take that out, I'm going to find the right guy. Like, I'm going to be great. I'm not going to steal anymore. And like, to be honest, I still I'd had to make a lot of financial amends for stealing. And I still have the thought sometimes I'm Mm -hmm. like, I don't want to pay $15 for sunscreen. Like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. So I had to like catch that sometimes. And so there was that like very stark reality once I started getting into the steps of like, no, this is, this doesn't have to do with alcohol. Like I used alcohol to deal with everything, but it's definitely not the reason that I was lying, cheating and stealing. Right. Right. How did you move? So once you got sober, how did you move into that, um, you know, into like working on getting well? I think I did it in baby steps for sure. I I did get a sponsor pretty early on. I'm also I've always been the gold star girl. Like I like I wanna get mm-hmm. the accolades. So yep. if you're telling me I should get a sponsor, like I'll get a sponsor. But I remember I would um like my first sober boyfriend, I like broke up with him and then I called her after and she's like, I would like for you to call me before you make like big decisions, right, you right. know? So I was definitely like sometimes slowly in a lot of those ways. And I don't really feel like I fully got into the steps until I had about six months. I definitely used relationships in the first six months to help me stay sober, which I'm grateful for because I don't know if I would have been able to stay sober without them. Yeah. So I think like, you know, whatever tools we use in the beginning, like oh. they're not they're not I, right. I, I, half I mean, of them I can't even say on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I just say I just say it's sober. Yeah. 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 I mean, you don't put down the drink and then suddenly become a different person. Like yeah. it's just it's this it's the beginning of 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 the transition of the change. You so like, you know, come kind of coming full circle, like with breakup bestie, 
obviously this was such a huge this relationship aspect was such a huge piece of your recovery. What were the relationships in the beginning that kind of started that and how did you get from those types of relationships to a healthy one? Yeah, so my like last relationship before I got sober was with this guy that I didn't like, but he liked me and I was <laughs> at that point where I was like, yeah, works. I'll be with whoever yeah. likes me at yeah. this point. Yeah. And then he broke up with me mm. because he said he never wanted to get married or have kids. And that was kind of this weird thing. I'm like, I didn't even want to be with you, but you're breaking, you know, yeah. but you broke up with me. So that was like at the very tail end of my drinking. And then I got into a relationship at like seven, seven days sober. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. Um, with a guy I used to drink with mm-hmm. and he was like ready to move in at like a month, you know. <laughs> And my mom was just so happy that, like, I was with someone that wasn't drinking. She right, was like right, – right. she, like, we, like, brought him yeah. on vacation with yeah, us. Yeah, like, yeah. At, like, you know. So um, – <laughs> but I remember he started giving me a hard time when I would go to meetings late with people. And I – like, thank goodness I said, I don't think this is right. Like, I think I'm like, supposed to go to meetings. Yeah. So I ended that with him. And then my next – and then week later in a new relationship – Three weeks later, he's living at my apartment. My first sponsor called my house the dog pound because I would literally just <laughs> just have people move in. Oh, God. <laughs> so good. So relatable. So this guy moved in. <laughs> dog pound. Yeah. He all of a sudden – it was the day I was supposed to do my fifth set. He called and he's like, so I decided that I don't want to get married or ever have kids. And that was it. And I was like. And he still lived with me for like, I think a month after that. <laughs> but <laughs> after breaking up with me, so so basically nice. over the over the course of like two and a half years, I got dumped three times because the guy didn't want to get married or have kids. Right. So it was like I had progressed from this narcissist, emotionally abusive, obsessive, toxic relationship into guys that didn't want to get married or have kids, even though I've always wanted to get married and have right. kids. Right. So so the last one, the third one, was with my now husband. So we were together about a year and a half. I met him right before I had about a year. Yeah. And we – that was – it was like the healthiest relationship I'd ever had. Like we did like a book club together. We would go to meetings together. Like we'd have these like super like deep talks about spirituality and like all that kind of stuff. And it was when I was coming to coming into my own in yeah. sobriety, yeah. like where I finally was comfortable. I finally had this group of friends. The fellowship came pretty slowly for me just because I was more focused on – relationships. Mm -hmm. So I finally like had this group of friends. And so we were together about a year and a half, but he was always very not sure if he ever wanted to get married, but he was upfront with me about it. But I was like, going to change, you know, yeah, that'll change. Yeah. So he broke up with me after a year and a half and he, it like destroyed me. Yeah. So I think I had like two and a half years sober at the time. And totally thought like I thought I was going to die from yeah. the pain. Yeah. And so that was the that was like the breakup of all breakups and I had done breakups before where I like kept in touch with them and mm-hmm. tried to stay friends, set the ego aside to mm-hmm. like appease the other person and I said like if we're going to break up like we're not going to be friends and and he like always respected that boundary like he never reached out to me. So we like 
cut ties. It was the first like clean breakup I had ever had. No social media. I mean, no, I looked on social media, but like we unfollowed on social yeah, media. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I used my friends' accounts. Totally. So, but I like dove into program. My sponsor took me through the 12 steps on him. So I went through all 12 steps on him. I did 90 meetings in 90 days. I literally would call women that I knew had gone through a divorce mm-hmm. or a breakup and I asked them to go to coffee, even mm-hmm. if I didn't know them. It was like I got sober. Yeah. Yeah. Because you did. Yes. Because you did. Like the first time, because my husband, same thing, we broke up. I broke up with him. And the only time I've ever like lost weight from a breakup, <laughs> like that doesn't same. happen yeah. for me. No, never um, happens for me. And it was the first, because I was so long sober and I remember thinking like, maybe I should cut myself and okay, I can't do that. I should smoke. Mm, don't want to do that. Like I literally was like, consciously thinking through like the different things I could do. And I realized I had never in all that time sober. I mean, I was years sober. I had never just sat in the pain from start to finish. I had always had something. I couldn't, I remember thinking like, I'm going to reach out to people to hook up, blah, blah, blah. Couldn't do it. Like couldn't do it. It was the first time. And that was real sobriety because there's nothing to pick up and I had to go through the the pain and the emotions and I went through – for the first time, I went through the emotion from the start of it to the end of it because I had never – the reason my using for me personally had always been about making that – whatever that discomfort was stop and so I only got to the middle before I stopped it. So I didn't know how long it was going to be. I didn't know it ended and that was the first time I like really went from like – the start of the feeling to the end of the feeling from like every cell in my body feeling like I was going to die, sitting on my bed, screaming into pillows until I literally just couldn't scream anymore. Friends coming over, like making me get out of bed. But that like you described, like I was going to meetings all the time. Like I, that was the only thing I could do. And so I got sober. Like I wasn't drinking, but I definitely got sober. Yeah, that's such a beautiful way to put it because I had this kind of similar experience, except I did try a one-night stand and it didn't work. Oh, I tried. Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, don't worry. Yeah. I tried. I burst into tears mid. It was mortifying. Nice. With someone in program. Mortifying. I was like, and we're not doing that yet. Like, I tried. It didn't work. Yeah. Couldn't make it work. Second, the person left. (laughs) I immediately started crying and I was like oh my gosh. It's not working. It doesn't work. Yeah. So, so yeah, but I had that same experience. I'd never gone through a breakup. Mm-hmm. I'd always gone around, yeah. over, under. Yeah. Yep. So, so that was the first time that I did that. And I did, I like fully got sober again and was super, it was like the first time I was super honest after a breakup and I like told everyone about it <laughs> at a reasonable, you know, reasonably. And And I did. I, like, got through to the other side. I took so many suggestions. I did so many, like, random writing assignments that – Because you don't want to be in pain. I don't want to be in pain. I was like, literally, give me anything. Give me anything. Because you've been sober long enough that you are like, no, 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 no. We're not going back. (laughs) Yes. Just that panic. It's sheer panic. And and you're like, okay. And you've had the experience because you were long enough sober. You've had the experience that – Taking people's suggestion works, so you just go, you know, balls to the wall. I did. I went balls to the wall, and literally, 
This is like still my style. It's like my biggest thing I'm working on this year is my crashing burn, crash and burn mm-hmm. where I go, 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 go. Yep. And I was doing that during the breakup. Like I had plans like <laughs> every, every weekend, yeah. every night, like always had this. I joined like four volunteer oh, committees, sure. like the American Cancer Society. <laughs> I was like planning their gala. Like literally I did. I just became like a yes person and I just was constantly busy. And I remember I got and out of my- That's how Barack Obama became yeah. president. <laughs> Through the breakup recovery. Yeah. So I remember I got out of my Sunday morning meeting and I had like, I was supposed to meet my parents for church and then I was going to go to my sponsor's house for a party and then I had a date that I had like met on Bumble and I was so tired. Someone came up and was like, how are you doing, kiddo? And I just burst into tears. (laughs) (laughs) Always, always great for the... And she's like, okay. And... (laughs) So I went home and I watched Netflix for like eight hours and was like, I called my parents and I was like, I can't, I can't go to church with you. I called the date, canceled it. So I def, there was like, I tried so hard to distract myself from the pain that I would often forget to sit, sit with it too. Mm -hmm. So it became this kind of trick of finding, and I talk a lot about that in the course, finding this balance of distracting yourself enough where you can live your daily life and like go to work and not Mm -hmm. burst into tears at the grocery store and Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. But also you got to feel it too, because if you don't feel it, you can't learn from it. And I think that's typically why people get into that cycle of like constantly breaking up, getting back together, or they either date the exact same person again without Mm -hmm. learning from it, or they go to the exact opposite because they think that'll be better. So I realized I have to feel it because I have to figure out what I liked about Luke so I could, you know, kind of take that forward, which is something I had never done. I had never processed yeah. a relationship for real. So I did that. But it was definitely like a learning curve. And I stayed single for, I think, like eight eight or nine months. And I had these realizations, like I kept going after emotionally unavailable men because I didn't feel worthy of being with someone who really wanted to be with me. And those were all beliefs that I'd had leading up and that Rick reinforced for me. So I had all these like beliefs about myself. So I had to at least uncover those and just see them for what they were. So that way I could, you know, work on not doing that kind of stuff. So it was a huge, like, I think I grew more in that nine Mm -hmm. months than I grew in my first two years of sobriety. Mm -hmm, For sure. Yeah. And then how did you guys get back together? So... I started dating a new guy in the program, really good, like super nice guy, just wasn't for me, wasn't, he just wasn't a great boyfriend. So I was with this guy for like nine months and we, um, like I had gone home to meet his family. So it was like getting relatively serious and I hadn't seen Luke at all. Like we didn't talk, we didn't see each other. And we had this wedding of a mutual friend. It was kind of like the first time we knew we were going to see each other. And it's actually so funny, like the week before we ran into each other at the fair and it was like the most awkward interaction ever. Um, But he wasn't sure he wanted to go to the wedding and he thought our fair interaction went really well. So he was like, (laughs) felt good about going to the wedding. (laughs) So, so the guy I was with couldn't go to this wedding. So I went by myself and Luke was there by himself. And I had decided beforehand that I was going to make amends to Luke at the wedding, just like I'm sorry I didn't let you own your truth. Like, I'm sorry to try to turn you into something that you weren't. And, like, yeah, I'm really grateful for the time we had. And I, like, don't have any hard feelings. So I I did those amends to him. And we talked, like, a tiny bit. But you could tell he, like, didn't want to directly talk to me. He would talk to me if we were in, like, a group. 
So it wasn't, I definitely had like some crazy feelings that came up after seeing him. And then three weeks later, I was at work and I got an email from him saying, hey, I have something like I really want to talk to you about. Would you be open to getting coffee? And my first thought was he wanted to make amends because I had made them to him and he didn't do that to me. So, you know, in program, I was like, he must be wanting to make an amends. So I even told the guy, I was my boyfriend at the time, I was like, hey, I think, and I, it's so interesting. I asked him because he recently had one of his ex-girlfriends make amends to him. So I felt okay asking because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he had just done it. So I was like, hey, I think my ex wants to make an amends. Like I'm going to go get coffee. So the next day we get coffee and we're in Irvine <laughs> <laughs> at a Starbucks and we'd start doing this small talk. But I can tell from the beginning he's very like lively and like asking about my parents. And he had this envelope sitting on the table with the letter K on it, which he used to call me K. And finally I was like, okay, like what's up? So, and he ends up just kind of walking me through like his whole process that he had gone through in the, in the last year and a half. Like he had never really been single. He had been in like long-term relationships since he got out of high school. And so how he really took the time to, to be single and like go on a ton of hikes and read a bunch of books. And he went to therapy and all this stuff and how he realized like he does want to have kids and he does want to get married. And when he saw me at the wedding, he realized I was the one that he was supposed to marry. So this long profession. He tells you this at coffee that you're the one he's supposed to marry. He literally said, I would marry you tomorrow. And I'm just like, I'm crying. (laughs) I'm so mad. Yeah. Why now? All this stuff. So he tells me all this and then he has me read this letter and it's like, nice paper. You like typed, (laughs) the pages are numbered. He like APA format. Sign the end of it. (laughs) Keep that forever. Yeah. Oh no, I have it. We had it in our wedding photos. And the first thing I say is, I think I'm going to throw up. Because I'm like so you poor pass out. Yeah. <laughs> I just was beside myself. Oh yeah, it's kind of a rom com. Yeah, it's like a kind of I'm like having rom com feelings. Yeah, and rom-com. I was like I'm with someone, and then he pulls out this picture of us at Coachella, and he's like, "Does this? Does he make you feel like this?" And I'm oh my, like, <laughs> this is legitimately a rom-com. He pulled out all the apps. And he's not, he's definitely not like a flashy romantic person. Yeah. So for all of this to be coming from him was a lot. <laughs> you were like, I, someone pinched me. Yeah. So he kept, I kept saying, I have to go. And he's like, you've said that like 12 times. And I was like, I just I have to go. So he leaves me with this letter. We like leave. He like sends me this text. And I was like, I, I need. Were you like, Yes. I want. No. No. I said. Um, <laughs> you just said I want to throw up. I just said I want to throw up. <laughs> I said, why now? I said, I'm with someone. And. Does he make you feel like this photo <laughs> at Coachella? <laughs> so I said, I have to go. And I said, I don't know if you're going to hear from me. And then I left. And then like, I literally like group conference called oh, like yeah. my sponsor, oh, my yeah. sponsee sister. Yeah. Like I had like four people on the phone yeah. at a time because I needed yeah. to like give them this rundown. <laughs> therapist, I like therapist. immediately took pictures of the letter and started yeah. texting it out to people. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So luckily he wrote that letter because everyone at first was like, heck no, that guy crushed you. And but I was like, you gotta read this. Like give, yeah. Yeah. So 
luckily I was going to a bachelorette party the next day for a girl in the program. So I go, I'm like trying the hardest not to take over the bachelorette party yeah, telling yeah, yeah. you about. And yeah. then one of the girls on the bachelorette party was like friends with my current boyfriend. Oh. So I'm like, I know this is weird for you, but like I have to tell you what's going yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so basically like what did you tell your did you tell your boyfriend anything no I said he made amends which he did but it was like yeah it was like a plus amends plus amends plus so but I think (laughs) one of the coolest things that I've noticed in sobriety is when I'm working a program I don't feel like I've ever had to make a really hard decision I always feel like the decision's almost made for me from like connection with a higher power and like that's what my sponsor always reminds me of is like when we get sober we get our intuition back Mm mm-hmm So I don't ever – I really don't feel like I've ever had to make a really hard decision in sobriety. And so by Saturday, I had made up my mind, and then I waited 24 hours because that was, like, you know, instructed. Like, that's AA in in my head. So I waited till the next day, like, drove home from Palm Springs, drove over to the boyfriend's house, broke up with him, and my sponsor made me promise her that I would call her first before I called Luke – so I called her, called my parents, and then I called Luke, and we had this, like, it's so in Ir- We met at a park in Irvine. <laughs> <laughs> Irvine, a love story. Yeah. yeah. I am literally <laughs> never going to not think about that. <laughs> so we met at this park in Irvine and literally, like, had this moment where we, like, ran out of each other's cars and, like, yeah, jumped up in a hug and... All this stuff. So it was definitely like this movie moment. So sex in, wake, in a park. <laughs> did not do that. I told him I wanted – I was like, you have to wait 30 days. And oh. we lasted three. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I at least needed to put out the three thirty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little math issue. Yeah. <laughs> Just, I forgot the zero. Yeah. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Because I gave, I was like, you have to court me. Yeah, You're not yeah. have sex for 30 days. Yeah, right. And You're going to have to stay – three feet away yeah. <laughs> at all times just to prove. Yeah. I, I had f- all these like stipulations. <laughs> but to write an essay. Yeah. <laughs> I want you to write an essay about what you did yeah. wrong to yeah. hurt me. Yeah, exactly. But you know, I, it became very evident that he was very changed. Yeah. We both changed. And I think what you said about you and your husband, like we would not have been together. Yeah. Yeah. And I know we would not be back. We would not have been able to get back together if we hadn't had a clean breakup because yeah. Breakups can get so toxic and, like, the name-calling and all that stuff. Like, if that happened, I don't think we would have been able to get back together. And I always like to give the disclaimer because every time I tell this story, someone's like, this gives me hope, which I'm sure you get (laughs) too. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. Like, I think – No, you have to go into it going, like, that was it. That was it. That was it. There was no – you have to let it, like, 100% go. Yeah. Or – And you know what's interesting? When we broke up, he told me that – he always thought we might get back together, but I'm so grateful he never told me that. Yeah. Because I, if I didn't, like, some of my friends were like, what if he's not making amends to you? Honestly, my second and third thought was he was going to tell me he was gay or that he was sick. Like, the last thought was that he was going to say he, like, one of my friends was like, what if he tells you he's in love with you? I'm like, there's no way. <laughs> I, it was that far. So I had, yeah, I had to fully go through. I'm sure he <laughs> I'm sure he loves that those <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me you were gay or sick. Yeah. I'm like, what? <laughs> Literally, like, a couple of my friends, we, like, had this talk about yeah. it. So 
so yeah, so I always have to tell people like that's not, and it's very much the exception to the rule. Yeah. Like the rule typically is like you don't get back together with your yeah. ex. And so I have a lot of people because I run my Instagram page, so I get DMs from people all the time, and they're like, "I've been broken up with my ex for a couple weeks. Like <laughs> they want to get back together." And I'm like, "Do you think anything has changed in yeah, two weeks? No, like, definitely not. It took us it took us 15 months to like do yeah. our own thing and be able to to go through that and. I'm so glad we did, but I don't know if you had this experience with your husband, but I had changed so much that we almost had to re get reacquainted oh, yeah. where oh, yeah. like I had a voice yeah. all of a sudden yeah. and things that didn't bother me about him or didn't bother me in general, all of a sudden I was able to voice that something bothered me. So I think we had to, we had to get reacquainted and he had to get used to this like Kendra that could stand up for herself and knew her worth because I learned all that stuff going through the breakup. So some of that wasn't all easy. We had that in the other direction, though. Okay. For, with him, I was like, wait, what? You have an opinion? No, it, it, we had that in, in, in the other direction. And there was a lot of, you know, I think I my same kind of thought process was like, I was just hoping that someday he would not be mad at me. And like, we, like my best hope for that situation was that he would understand where I was coming from someday and not hate me. Never that we were going to get back together. I I Mm. didn't think he was ever going to speak to me again. Yeah. Like truly did not think. So to get back together in those, under those circumstances with those changes, like, yeah, we had to relearn how to relearn who each other was and the new rules of engagement. And then figure out how we were going to work through things because another thing that happened, which sounds like kind of did with you, was that it was so tumultuous. Like I was such – we were such hot messes when we broke up with each other's friends, like friend groups that our friends and our parents and we're like, you're what? Yeah. You're – I'm sorry. You're doing what? I'm like, oh, yeah, we're getting back together. And like that was not exactly – like everyone was not – and Doc didn't write me a pretty letter, so I didn't have anything to show for it. I was just like, no, take my word for it. So I think – it was like really showing showing our family and friends that things had actually changed, um, respecting each other. And for us, it was about utilizing – like we got outside help when like when things would get really complicated. And I, we found that to be really helpful. So like him being willing, me being willing to say like, okay, we need a third person to help talk this piece through because I'm not really – get like we are clearly not understanding each other yeah no and and that we had that same situation with family and friends and you know going back to like program principles Luke sat down with my dad and like made amends to my dad for the pain that he caused the family and and I think again goes back to like early sobriety of like we had to prove through action yes that yes. we were that we were gonna yes. make be able to make it work, and I remember my mom telling me like we don't you don't know if you're gonna end up marrying Luke, but like you'll kick yourself if you don't find out like yeah. if it will work. Yeah, and so we just had to prove we had to you know we had to just like show through our actions yeah. to each other yeah. too because it was you know almost like being in a new relationship, and I remember I had to like let go of the thought that people were like weren't you just with someone and now you're back with him? And then I was like, what if people don't know we were together before? Because we got engaged like six months after we got back together. Yeah. 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 So we got engaged like six months later. So I'm like, people are going to think we're moving so fast. And so just like learning to let go of that people pleasing. And like, I think my 
happiness in the relationship should be able to speak for itself. And like yeah. anyone that knows Luke and I like, you know, knows that we are meant to be together and yeah. I wasn't meant to be with that other person. So, so yeah, it was definitely like a weird kind of time. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, we got, so we got back together after five months, not okay. 15. Yeah. And, um, we got back together like September 7th and we had had like ugly breakups and we had had several and, uh, we didn't tell anybody that we were getting back together because we didn't want to deal with that. And then we signed an 18-month lease on October 1st. So good. So good. So good. And, and he – the so I told my parents, I was like, look, I don't want to hear it. I don't need – like I know exactly what you're going to say. Don't need to hear it. And he didn't tell anyone. And the friend of his that helped him move out of my – of our apartment, he was his boss at work. And like – Dad hadn't told anyone. And then in order to get this house, he he had to call his work to, like, verify his employment. And so the landlord <laughs> calls his work to verify his employment and is like, oh, yeah, Ashley and blah, blah, blah are getting a house. Blah, blah, blah. I just want to make sure that, that, you know, this is where Dax does he work. <laughs> That's how they He's found like, out. This is where Dax works. Yeah. But. Yeah, exactly. So it was like this whole – it was, just, you know, same thing. Like we had to really prove that this was a different deal. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, then being with Luke this time, I'd say is definitely my only healthy relationship that I've experienced. So then it was looking at so many other things. Like I started going to Al-Anon about a year and a half ago and it's been like the biggest lifesaver, but just learning about boundaries and learning like... I went from being someone who put up with anything in a relationship to then all of a sudden picking at everything in a relationship, which I think just alcoholics do in general. We go from one extreme to the other. So like learning how to like coexist in a relationship (laughs) with another person long term. It's yeah, it's definitely like a thing that I work at a lot and like so glad to have another set of 12 steps to go through Don't for even it. get me started. Yeah. I'm going to end up in every single program by the time my life I is over. I feel like at some point, yeah. yeah. What um, what did Al-Anon do for you? So, or what has Al-Anon done for you? I don't think a lot of people know. Yeah. So I initially went to Al-Anon to help in my marriage and also to help with my relationship with my mom. And we, you know, my mom and I have like sat in therapy sessions through this, but she, we kind of switched roles after I got sober. So I used to be the one that called and dumped everything on her. And as part of my living amends to her, like I called her every single day, asked her how she was doing. And it kind of switched where I felt like I was almost becoming her mom. Like I was kind of her counselor for everything, her Mm -hmm. therapist for everything. I helped her work through all of her issues and it started to really not feel good. And I didn't know quite how to address that and change that. So Al-Anon for me, I think one taught me what is my business and what's not my business, which most everything is not my business. I have (laughs) come to learn and learning how to, because I thought, because I hadn't expressed my needs for so long, I felt like the second they came out of my mouth, they better be met because don't you know, I've never had needs before. So like now's my turn to get what I want. So learning how to express them and then let go of the results after I do that. And then learning about how I can 
like love people from more of a distance, you know, and how to identify when something makes me feel good and when it makes me feel bad and learning how to step away from those things. It's really just like a boundary kind of thing. And like one thing that came out of it was like I was always everyone's secret keeper, Mm. especially like in the family. Like people would be like, this is going on. Don't tell your parents. And then I would like have to sit with like other people's secrets. And so just learning how to be like, actually, you know, if I don't, if I'm not going to tell anyone, like I I don't need to hear that. And just learning how to say those kinds of things in a way that is loving. Is loving. Yeah. 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 It doesn't put people off. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, I re- I, that's huge. It's a huge thing. I think as we get sober, people, like as we get well, people are, gravitate and then they want what you have and then that kind of stuff. You have to learn how to, what's the word? You have to learn how to kind of navigate all of the stuff that comes out of that and, you know, the roles, the role changes and what happens when you get healthy because it definitely people change around you and people change how they react to you. Yeah. And then like learning how to not take over when someone needs help. Yes. Just like saying, hey, I can, you know, I can, you can meet me at a meeting, but like, I don't need to go over to your house and like pull you out of your house and do all that kind of stuff. Um, And like really learning the fact of like, because I used to get involved in things, and then I would end up looking like the bad guy. And I just had this like victim mentality of like, I'm trying to help. Don't mm-hmm. they know? And then it was like really taking it back to like, we ste- we find that we stepped on the toes of our fellows and they retaliated kind of thing. It's right. like really learning how to do that. And then, I mean, Al-Anon has helped me tremendously with my AA sponsees. Like I used to drop everything to take a call and like, you know, really felt like I had to be this soul, like I had to be everything to them and just learning like, nope, I help where I can. Like I offer what I can when I can and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Learning how to have good boundaries. Yes. And boundaries are hard. Boundaries are really hard, especially with people that you love. And when you think that, you know, one thing I've struggled with, which the principles of Al-Anon have helped was just kind of what you talked about, which was there'd be a crisis and there'd be five people that could help, but I would step in and be the one, like I wouldn't give other people the opportunity to be the helper because I had the solution or I could help or whatever it was. And learning that like, I don't have to be just because I can, doesn't mean I have to every time and how to guard my energy, like that stay away from energy vampires and to guard my energy because if I don't have it, then I'm not, you know, I become, I revert back to that person who has to use something to feel okay. Yeah. No, that's a a huge thing. And like, you know, filling my cup up first before I can help anyone else out. And, and yeah, I used to love being around the energy vampires. I used to like almost like it because I think at one point, I loved the feeling of people needing me because that's the only reason. That's the only way, like, I didn't feel like I was a burden. Mm -hmm. Like, I kind of had to learn, like, I'm okay just as I am and I don't need to, like, work really hard to feel accepted, which I felt like that for a long time. So I had to break that belief, too, where I realized I don't have to be – like, I would always be the friend that, like, planned everything and, like, Mm -hmm. paid for stuff and, like – I just had to learn, like, I don't have to do that. Like, I can be a guest at something and just show up and be okay. Like, I can help, you know, I am I try to always be of service, but I don't need to be this the person that's coordinating everything. Right. And, like, and then, too, like, breaking the habit of, like, my family always feeling like I was the planner. Like, I don't want to do that anymore because it's, like, not fun for me. I don't enjoy vacations if I'm always the one that's, like right. – 
trying to rally the troops and figure out the plan mm-hmm. and do the itinerary and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. So so it's been it's been a big learning experience. And when I first got into Al-Anon, I felt like a newcomer again. Like everything just felt so foreign where I didn't – I had to call a sponsor for, for everything, just like in the beginning of sobriety where like I didn't know how to handle a conversation with my mom or with my husband and – and so it's been it's been like a good next layer of sobriety right. for me, which right. I think we always need to to be continuously building on our sobriety. And that's what, you know, keeps me super engaged in meetings and, you know, allows me to continue to work towards something. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. How long have you guys been married now? A year and a half almost. Awesome. Yeah. A year and a half this month. Okay. Yeah. And um Break. What does your husband think about breakup, bestie? He's actually like the one that said to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He. So I was going through this job transition probably about four years ago, and he asked me. He goes, "What do you What do you really like doing?" And what happened because I was so open about my breakup and was literally sobbing in meetings during the breakup. I had people come to me and yeah. ask, "Hey, can you yeah. help me? Like, yeah. I heard you went through the steps on a breakup. Can you show me how to do that?" Right. So. I was helping a lot of people in that regard and he asked me what I love doing and I said that's what I that's honestly what I love doing. I love helping women through breakups. So so it, that's kind of where it started. So he yeah, no, he's always been like number one supporter with that, which is so awesome, especially because I have to talk about our breakup a lot and what he did, (laughs) you know, (laughs) totally. So he's like, you know, we did like a little party for my um, online course and you know, my first shout out was like, shout out to Luke for dumping me for having this. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for your contribution to this. Thank you for always supporting me by dumping me and yeah. yeah, And giving me tons of material to write about. So no, he's, he's incredibly supportive and he's also, you know, has that kind of entrepreneurial part about him. So, so yeah, so he's, he's really supportive, which I'm really lucky. I launched the blog originally like a month before we got married. And so, so it's interesting to like be in a marriage and then also be like writing a lot about breakups and stuff and stuff like that too. Yeah, for sure. How many weeks is the course? And so it's kind of self-paced. So it's four like modules. So the first one, I call it triage. And it's really just about figuring out ways to like get you to work and like get you to be able to function. Yeah. And then there's a whole like detox module. Mm -hmm. So there's like a full checklist of things I suggest people to do. And then there's a full processing one. So it's a lot of questions. And what's really cool is I was able to take a lot of this stuff that I learned because I feel so lucky that I had program to go through the breakup. And so few people don't have a program at all. They don't have tools. So I was able to take some of the inspiration from program and, and turn it into something that people who aren't alcoholics can do, which yeah. I think everyone would benefit from the 12 steps. Of course. But being able to kind of take it, take a spin off of it. So I do have people write down like their part and their resentments towards their ex and have them really look at that kind of stuff. And then the last section is moving forward where I have them write. I have them like forgive every single ex that they've ever had just to like let go and then kind of do some like manifest manifestation exercises on what they want and what they want mm-hmm. to move forward with. Mm-hmm. Like so, seen and sound ideals type stuff. Yeah. So I, I tell people like, don't move on if you don't feel ready. But I think the first two are really important to do in the beginning just because yeah. it's like, this is emergency, yeah. you know, yeah. like have to get out of that yeah. like, out of pain. That. Yeah. Yeah. So to move forward. Yeah. Have you had feedback? Have you had people who found it online and just done it like 
who have know nothing about anything. So I just because we just started, I haven't had anyone complete the course yet except for my mom. But yay, <laughs> she did it like in one night. <laughs> You're like mom. She's uh, like, I haven't gone through a breakup in 40 years, yeah. but um, <laughs> but I've been able to, you know, go through. I did like a couple live events. Oh, okay, okay. Where, so I've had people go through sections of it and just being like people. Like a workshop. Like a workshop, yeah. And I got a lot of really good feedback from that, which is really nice. And what's cool is some of the workshops that I did, I just called it like a relationship energy clearing. So people that were married came yeah. and were finally able to let go That's of an awesome. ex that was kind of working their way into their yeah. current relationship just from past beliefs and resentments right. and all that kind of stuff. So so I have gotten a lot of good feedback and through Instagram, I've had so many opportunities to oh, like sure. connect with people going through breakups and just, you know, get like small little pieces of their story and offer help where I can. And so, so it's, it's been, it's very fulfilling for me, which, you know, is good. Cause right now I still like work full time during the day. So yeah. it's, um, so I, but I feel like I always have like kind of the energy to put towards that, which yeah. is really, which is really cool. Your passion. Yeah. Yeah. yeah awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming. And we, w- I'm so excited to see what happens with Breakup Bestie. It, where can, can you tell people where they can find all the information? Yeah. So the course they can find on my website, which is www.breakupbestie.com. And then on Instagram, it's at your breakup bestie. And I pretty much respond to like every DM and email. So if people ever want advice, they can always reach out to me on there. Awesome. I have someone to send you. Oh, good. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Or not good, but good. Or not good. good. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800-258-6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information. 